Hello everyone, our guest this week is co-founder and CEO of Genius, Tom Lehman. Launched in 2009 as Rap Genius, the website started as a rap lyric annotation platform. Fast forward today, Genius is one of the most followed online media companies with over 200 employees and millions of daily user engagements. With collaboration and support from global artists such as Travis Scott, Billie Eilish and Ariana Grande. During our conversation with Tom, we talked about his vision for Genius in the early days, the challenges of working on a completely new concept, and lessons learned along the way. Here's Tom Lehman on Came a Long Way. Hello, everyone. You're listening to UCLA Radio, and this is Came a Long Way. We have a very special guest here today, Tom Lehman. Welcome. Hello, UCLA. How are you today? I am great. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on this storied radio channel. And we're very excited to have you. And for some of our listeners who might not know, um, you have co-founded Genius, formerly known as Rap Genius, which eventually became an online media company. Can you take us to the early days of this journey and what was the vision back then and how it evolved over time? Sure, sure. So yeah, so Genius, uh, which you can, you know, for those uh, listening out there in Radioland, you can check out Genius by going to Genius.com. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel that I'm really proud about, YouTube.com slash Genius, and you can see us uh, on Spotify and there behind the lyrics feature, which is this uh, uh, sort of uh, experience where you can experience lyrics and, and, and facts in Spotify. Uh, and we also provide a bunch of uh, Apple Music's uh, lyrics. And so we're kind of trying to be a company uh, that is about music intelligence, as we call it, which is basically giving you all of the context and meaning surrounding the music that you listen to so that you can appreciate it uh, on a more on, on the deepest possible uh, uh, level, and so you know, this the the the, the site you know the, the company represents that today, and that's actually how we started. It was a uh, a conversation or a series of conversations in uh, uh, my my uh, uh, my apartment. I was living in in the East Village, so um, the East Village is an area of New York, which is basically kind of like the grittier LA, and uh, so anyway, it's it's like, and so um, the East Village is kind of like a cute neighborhood of, of New York. And, and this was 2009. And I was living uh, in the East Village with my uh, current business partner, uh, Alon, and we were living in the same apartment. And we were just basically talking about lyrics, talking about rap lyrics. I was getting into rap for the first time, kind of trying to, you know, understand uh, hip hop lyricism and having be experiencing for myself what it felt like to have, you know, a friend uh, who was smart, who was funny, who knew about music, explained to me what was going on in lyrics, what songs were referencing other songs, just made me appreciate the music on a much deeper level. And so there is this feeling of like, well, whoa, maybe like we could take this experience that is possible only because I happen to have these friends and put it on the internet where anyone can uh, uh, help, you know, explain lyrics and talk about the medium music and, and other people could come uh, uh, read that crowdsourced information and, and, and learn themselves. And so the idea was, you know, hey, there should be a website for this conversation. And, and then we, uh, uh, you know, we made we made that uh, that happen, and it started off as a uh, a pretty small uh, uh, side project that was made just to amuse ourselves. But then gradually, we were able to grow it into a into a company. And what was that point that you realized that this could be a full time thing that you could pursue? It's a great question because you know when you're starting something, you know there's always the feeling of like, is this really happening, or is this kind of like a uh, you know, fun thing I'm doing on the side because, you know, you can do something and put something out there that's cool, but then to make it actually cool, it takes an insane amount of work. You have to keep working on it week over week over week over week. And it's not probably as glamorous as when you first put it out there and you sent it to some friends and they said it was cool. Like, 
you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's harder to, uh, uh, to really get into the gradual improvement. And so, you know, over time you start to lose, uh, interest. And that's what happened with me, uh, with genius in the beginning, there would be ebbs and flows of my, uh, my energy where I'd be like, Oh, like, this is done. I want to work on something else. Like I can't think of any way to improve this. It's not getting that much traffic. And so basically what kept me afloat was little hits of encouragement from the outside world. Like there'd be someone I knew from like a different uh, context. Like there used to be this, this famous uh, music uh, blogging website called hype beast, not hype beast, sorry, called hype machine. And uh, uh, it's not really around anymore. I don't think, but, uh, or maybe it is, I actually don't know, but like that, the, the, the co-founder of that site is someone who I really respect and uh, I just remember randomly, like he tweeted genius in the early days. And I was just like, whoa, okay, well, if this guy likes it, you know, I could keep going for another, you know, three months. And of course I was working out with my friends, which, uh, uh, which helped. But to be honest, you know, we never, uh, I never really thought of it as something that could blow up until we got accepted to Y Combinator. And, you know, that was a, uh, a big moment because getting some funding allowed me to actually, you know, and, and, my, and my partners to get the courage to really go all in and quit everything that we're doing and, and go to California. And if it hadn't been for Y Combinator, uh, I'm not sure we would have been able to say, we're going to go out and, 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 and raise money now or get a seed round because it was always just like, excuse me, it was always like a fun project and, and, and crossing over, you know, getting that validation uh, was, was really important. But we got rejected from Y Combinator too. So, you know, when we got rejected from Y Combinator, we thought, well, I guess that's it, you know? And so, uh, uh, you know, it was only by getting rejected and then applying again and then going through that whole process of like, well, if we get rejected again, that's going to be more disappointed, disappointing. So, you know, it's hard because in the beginning, it's very, you have to toil a lot without getting any positive uh, feedback. And that's, that's a tough thing. And right before looking for funding, you have some sort of traction, you have some sort of good feedback. What was the process like convincing people? Because at the end of the day, Rap Genies, even at that time, it was something that was never done before. So what's the most important aspect of convincing people that's never been done? You know, it's interesting. Like, I think, you know, something that looks, uh, you know, a graph that looks like a hockey stick or whatever, you know, you know, something like that, a graph that's not just, that goes up, but it's not just a line, it actually goes up in like a, a more extreme way. And so, you know, you need to demonstrate some type of fast exponential growth in an area that's uh, important. The best thing is for it to be revenue, but for us, it was also very good that we were able to grow traffic really quickly once we got some traction. Now it took us about a year of work before we started to really actually get traffic. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know how well you're doing because maybe you're on the road to getting traction, but you haven't gotten it, but it took us about a year. And at that point we started getting better at SEO and the site started growing pretty quickly. And that was a, uh, a big part of it, just being able to show a good traffic graph. Also, it's a unique idea. It was something that people saw and it kind of clicked with them. Like learning what a lyric means is something that, you know, everyone has had that experience learning that they uh, thought a lyric was something and it's actually something else. Everyone's had that experience. So like people, you know, people are searching for meaning and that, that drew people. And then finally, like we had, especially as we started to like raise a seed round and, and really take it seriously, like we uh, also had the uh, backing of uh, some important uh, artists and famous people and so forth. So like Nas, the rapper Nas, who's, you know, one of the inspirations behind the site, you know, kind of got up close, met us, really liked the site, got involved, invested. And so, you know, Eminem also an investor. And so that kind of validation where it's like, you know, these guys are, are, are really trying to, uh, um, you know, are, are, you know, really trying to do something here that's really big. That's, that's, that's kind of, and, and, and people who are, you know, in the industry are seeing it like, this feels like it could be like, you know, 
a real part of, of, of music, not just kind of like a thing on the on the side with people I think really wanted to sing. And throughout this entrepreneurial journey, um, like doing a product as unique as Genius, how did it impact your personal growth? And um, how what did you discover um, in yourself um, about like entrepreneurship and doing something like this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, you know taught me a lot of uh, humility, basically. Like, I think you know if you are doing something. So taking a step back, like I'm an engineer, you know, at, at heart and not really by training, but I, that, that's like my, my worldview is basically, you know, engineering centric. And, and, and I, uh, I built the first version of Genius uh, in, you know, myself. I was the only engineer for years. Uh, I hired the engineering team. That was like my, uh, my role. And uh, there are some worlds in which that role can remain your primary lens. Like you can be an engineer and that can be like the thing maybe it's like a more tech oriented but if you're trying to do something that lives within culture uh and taught and 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 also reaches people using the where and and in what way is easiest like so for example like people can read you know text and, and interact with the artists on your website that you program but what if people want to watch a, a video you know, that's not going to be on a platform you created. It's probably going to be on YouTube. Maybe they'll also watch it on your platform, but mostly on YouTube. And so, you know, you've got to work with that sort of distribution mechanism. You've got to understand the technology behind shooting video, behind storing the data that you shoot and how you can manage that and back it up and so forth. And so, you know, basically approaching it from a very engineering mindset, but then learning that you have to look at things through other people's eyes to understand how to make the product work best for them, best for the business. And this is also relates to sales. You know, my view is that, you know, my initial view is kind of like, you know, the engineering is, 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 is primary. My, my, now my view is basically a great engineer is someone who can learn, who knows their customer's business better than their customer knows it, at least in some ways. Like when I say, who's a great engineer, a great engineer is someone who can not just take the requirements from another business unit or customer and build something to fit those the great engineer is someone who can come and say here this is the thing you want i've researched your situation i've talked to people and here's the thing you want give me your feedback do you, do you like this do you not and, and that's kind of the approach that i that i try to push myself and other engineers uh, uh to have now because there's just so much richness when you're in a company like genius in other people's areas of, of expertise you have to have humility uh, about the thing you do and really try to look at things through other people's through, uh, through other people's perspectives. So, you know, humility and trying to look at it, trying to have empathy and, uh, uh, you know, find, you know, what's true and what other people saying. And, and, and even if you really disagree, trying to find the kernel of truth and in, in, in what anyone's saying to you. And how did that, how does that apply? Probably like we have to go back to the early days kind of, but what was the most important personality that you were looking for when building that team? Um, were you looking people like-minded people or were you looking for people that were completely different in skill set and personality? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of it. I think in the beginning I was looking for more like-minded people, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think it's good that, you know, I started the site, you know, my friends and I started this, it was friends in the beginning. And then, you know, you start the site with friends and then you think, okay, well, let me find more, more friends or more people who I want to be friends with like-minded people. And uh, I think that's a big mistake. I think it's, it's in some ways you, at the very, very first level, you need to know the person you're starting the company with first. You probably can't, you know, it's, or some people do it. Some people interview someone to be their co-founder, but I think that's hard. After the beginning, I think it's very important to strive to 
not let an interview or a job search be a friendship test, like a, you know, do I want to hang out with this person sort of uh, a test. It's like, it's not a friendship test. You're not trying to find people you can hang out with. You're trying to find people you, who you can accomplish important uh, uh, culturally relevant things with. And that means you have to push yourself to uh, think about their actual talents and not ask yourself whether they would fit in culturally or whatever. And this is like, you know, a meme, like in, in, in one stage, you could read stuff on Hacker News where they'd say, hiring for culture fit is super important. And now people seem to agree that that's actually not a good thing, that it inhibits diversity of thought and diversity generally. Um, but that's certainly been my, uh, been my evolution, like, you know, wanting to be around people I was friends with, to wanting to really push myself to not have that as a criterion uh, at all. And, uh, uh, you know, push everyone at the company to basically like ignore like, oh, you interview this person, they seem like a little bit like abrasive. Can they do the job? Do they have talent? Do they bring something to the table? Okay, we can get past uh, uh, the other stuff. And fast forward now, uh, I'm imagining in Genius Now, there are a lot of different people with different skill sets and personalities that work together really well. What does the work culture or the environment needs to be like for that to happen, for everyone to feel like they're equal and they have a voice? Yes, it's a good question. I think one part of it is kind of codifying what the environment should be like. Like, you know, we have, uh, you know, our corporate values are called the isms, the genius isms, which you can find if you Google them. I'm actually kind of embarrassed of them because they're very old and I want to rewrite them, but they are what they are for now. And so I've got to say it, but just, you know, it's good to write this stuff down because new people come into the company and it's hard to kind of osmose the, the cultural values if, if, if the company's bigger and so forth. But, you know, one big aspect uh, you know, one big aspect is obviously, like the, you know, the humility thing is saying, like, I want to learn about other people's perspectives more than I want to bring my brilliant ideas to the, to the table or whatever. But, you know, just in the same vein, another aspect is being uh, uh, real with feedback. So we have an ism called feel it's my face, which is basically this idea that, you know, if you're having lunch with someone, you get food in your teeth, you know, or rather maybe you're on the other end of that. You're with someone, they get food in their teeth. What do you do? You know, the temptation is always to not say anything because, like, who wants to have some awkward exchange where you tell the person, but it's kind to tell the person they have food in their teeth because then they're not going to go around all day. And then someone's going to say they had food in their teeth and they're going to think, oh my God, I had food in my teeth for the past three hours. No one told me, you know, that kind of thing. So you've got to give people feedback that's real on what they're doing. And you've got to treat it as like a nice thing that you were doing, which means you have to give it in a constructive way, but you can't hold back because holding back is actually not nice. Holding back is, 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 uh, uh, you know, hurts the, the company and also hurts that, that person. So you have to be, you know, feedback is a gift style. I think another thing that's important, you know, we have this newism we're coming up with, we're revamping the isms. We got this newism coming, we're coming out with called no backstop alert, which is basically this idea that when you are running a prog project with multiple different people from different departments with different perspectives, there's kind of this question of like, okay, who's in charge basically? Like right. a bunch of people, colleagues, like no one reports, it's all across the thick. Who's in charge? Who is the backstop? Who's the person who is going to make sure that this thing happens. That doesn't mean the person needs to do every little thing themselves. They need to organize it. They need to reach out for help. They need to basically make sure it happens and there's no excuse. And that's like, you know, maybe we're in a project and we're all kind of in charge and, you know, no hierarchy here, but no, it's like, it feels good. It's better. It just, you need someone who is in charge. You need to figure out who that is. And if there's no one, you, you, can, you can easily see who's in charge. You're, you're supposed to a genius. You say, no backstop alert. And then that means we have to find someone to be the backstop, to be the person who's ultimately in charge. And then, you know, the last thing I would just say, and this relates to the other stuff too, is that, you know, one of our isms, great ism, is uh, an ism that um, uh, it's called run into the spike. 
which is basically this idea that, you know, if you're walking and you see a, uh, a giant spike uh, on the wall, you know, you probably don't want to like, you know, jump into it and spear yourself. Right. And that's similar to a lot of times at work when there's a really hard conversation you have to have or a project you want to do, but you like, it's so, you know, it's like doing a hard thing at work kind of feels like jumping into a spike sometimes. And so, you know, humorously, uh, I think it's good to make that vivid in our heads and say like, okay, you know, this is a hard thing. This is something that involves knowledge and skills. I don't necessarily have. There are other easier things I want to do, like check my email. Uh, instead, I'm going to do the thing that's hard, and I'm going to run into the spike. And so, I think that's just a very important cultural uh, uh, value to have, particularly when everyone's job involves doing things that they are not like experts, uh, you know, in. And um, along with this, like working in a company or owning a company, success, the definition of success can mean different things to different people. And some people see it as financial progress and others see it as doing what they're passionate about or doing what they love. Um, how would you define success for yourself? You know, that's a good question. Like I earlier on, I think I would have defined it differently. Like there's um, there's a famous uh, Blink-182 song called All the Small Things. Is Blink-182 still relevant? You know who that is? Yeah. So anyway, there's a lyric in it where, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's like uh, late night, come home, work sucks, I know. And for a while, I always used to hate that song. And I would hate it when people would sing it like coming karaoke because I was like, no, work doesn't suck. Uh, work is, is, is fun, you know. And, 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 uh, and now I like the song because I think there's no way that you can accomplish something important in the world and also make enough money to keep that thing going and have it be uh, fun and a, you know, passion driven thing every day. It's, it's hard work sucks. You've got to uh, uh, embrace that. Um, and as a reward for that, you get something that continues to exist. It continues to, go, to do cool things because, you know, it can easily not be the case. Genius could have easily gone out of business in the past it's hard to have something that lasts for this long and it's hard to keep it going every additional year because we have to do bigger and bigger stuff growth is expected and so my definition of success is remaining around doing the thing you want to do hitting the same maybe not banging the drum like at the loudest possible volume in any one year but banging that same drum year after year after year and of course that requires passion but it is a grind uh in a real way my goal is for genius to keep doing the simple thing that it is trying to do, which is help people understand and appreciate music on a deeper level uh, forever. And, you know, not for any individual aspect of that to be like the most, you know, fun ride of my life. Whereas in the beginning, when there's only one year of it under my belt, it kind of was like that. That's the other thing. Like I underestimated how long this thing would be, you know, it's like you, you start a company and your startup vests on a four year schedule. So you think, okay, well in four years or five years, I'll have some more clarity on like what this thing is. And it's like, you know, you, it's, it's actually not, not true. It's, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a decade in and we're still trying to figure out like, you know, what we're going to be when we uh, grow up, you know, it's, it's an ever evolving and perfect thing. And you touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, entrepreneurship or this co-founding a company is something that's perceived as glamorous nowadays because of the way it's perceived in the social media and just in general uh, in the world. Uh, but probably the best way to give an accurate idea of what being an entrepreneur and starting a company as successful as Genius B would probably give real life examples. So would you share with us a moment where you felt really challenged throughout this journey and how you overcame that situation? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, a big a big part of this is related to 
you know, genius raising money and trying to go to the next level in the beginning. So like basically what happens is, you know, you have a, you have something that's nothing and then you try to build it. You start to get some traction, at least with set with this with me, you start to get some traction and now you have a good thing. And so now the question is how can you build something transformative on top of an already good thing? And then you go raise money and you go pitch and say, here's how I'm going to take this good thing and build a new thing on top of it that really makes the whole thing transformative. And, you know, the thought might be once you've built the original thing, that's the hard part. The, trans the building that into a way bigger transformational thing should be easy. And that turns out it's not true. And uh, building something transformational on top of a successful thing without destroying that successful thing is actually incredibly difficult. And so that's uh, an issue we ran into. And so in particular, you know, for us, we had this very good thing, which was uh, a website that had annotated lyrics. And so there was a question, what is the next thing going to be? And the answer to that, that we, you know, figured out by thinking about, you know, what we thought was an opportunity by what was already going on in the site was to take the concept of annotation, take it beyond music and say, okay, you know, genius will help you find out what a song means. We'll also help you find out what a poem means. It'll help you find out, you know, what's going on behind an, an, an editorial in the New York times. It'll help you fact check the New York times. You know, it will, uh, uh, you know, it, we, you'll be able to annotate images. You'll be able to annotate this part of the image and say, you know, this is why the album art is this way, or it doesn't have to be album art. It can be anything. And so the idea was basically to take the annotation concept and spread it beyond music to every form of, of text and who knows, maybe even video. And this was a good idea, I think. And we achieved some success with it on the website, but it wasn't, you know, going gangbusters. And so we were like, what do we do? And then we had another idea, which was our best idea here, which was something we called the genius web annotator, which was a Chrome extension. Uh, and you could use it other ways, but just imagine a browser extension where, you go to any website on the internet, you can highlight any piece of text and press annotate. And once you annotate that text, other people who come to that page and who follow you and so forth will see, you know, curated annotations based on experts and who they follow and all this kind of stuff, a kind of social network plus knowledge project for annotating the entire uh, internet. And, you know, this had a lot to recommend it. You know, one cute aspect to this is that this was supposed to be part of the browser to begin with when Mark Andreessen, one of our investors, invented the web browser he actually had this in there but then took it out because he didn't have time or whatever so it had like a lot of a lot of energy behind it it was a cool product it got traction but what we realized was it did not get traction in an accretive way to the old project in other words like what we were trying to do was take uh, the original project and build on top of that and what we actually ended up doing was taking the original project and building something that was also kind of cool to the side of that and we got traction. And if it were a brand new company or something, I would want to explore this. I still think it's a great idea, but it wasn't as synergistic with the music thing as we thought. And pursuing it in concert with the music thing would have required hiring people with different passions and building different types of technology. And it turns out that the core thing that we were doing was not annotation to apply it to all forms of human culture. It was actually deepening understanding of music through annotation and other means. And so that ended up being the right thing to, to do, which we ended up doing. But the experience of being really jazzed in the web annotator, of me personally really getting up in front of the company and saying, like, this is it, like, let's go, like, rah, rah, team, whatever, and then it not going as planned and just feeling like, wow, like, all of the expectations, all of this money we raised, everything, and certainly all of my, like, arrogance of, of, of how great I thought this was, this is all crumbling down uh, uh, around me, and it was a uh, it was a really, you know, tough uh, uh, tough experience because I just felt like you know I felt like I had 
you know, failed basically. And, and, and the company was in, was in really deep trouble because we had spent a year or more uh, working on a product that ended up not being part of the, of the thing. And so the experience of feeling that I had failed at times, feeling like I couldn't even go into work and face everyone. And then over time figuring out like, okay, there's a problem I have to solve. We got money in the bank. We got talented people who work here. The past is the past. Let's rebuild this company basically. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and sure enough, um, I think probably like 90% of the people at the company, 85%, you know, almost all of the company is, is new after 2015 when we switched gears like this. So it ended up being like a very positive thing, but you know, it was very, it was very trying. And I think, you know, it really felt like, uh, you know, even though I didn't really complain to anyone cause it was still like, you know, genius was still cool. And I was, you know, still running my own company and all that kind of good stuff, but it really felt to me like I'm done, like I'm absolutely done. And so, you know. That experience taught me both that you can recover. There is a move. If you've got money in the bank, there is a move. And then also it taught me just more humility. You know, you, you've got to know that you are, you know, one bad quarter, two bad quarters away from crisis, which doesn't mean you should be sad, but it means you should like, you know, not be arrogant. You should be humble. You should be, you know, kind of, you know, in touch with that a little bit. And that will, that will help you. So, you know, that was a tough one, but ultimately it ended up uh, very positive, and I think we we centered on a, a really great vision for for the company. I'm really happy with where we are now, but it took a little while. And based on the experience, on a more personal level, if you could go back and give yourself one advice, what would that be? I would say that no matter how bad it seems, how hopeless you are, that with time you will be able to figure out a way to overcome or at least be at peace. And now that we're talking about the past and you've given us some of your memories, we want to give you three years in the past and then we want you to share with us an important memory from each. Thanks. So the first year would be 2005. Yes, so in 2005, I was a uh, uh, senior, a junior slash senior in college. So just think about that for a second uh, in, in radio land. Imagine how horrible that would feel if, if you were me. And it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Old. It's all, you know. Anyway, so I was, I was, a, I was a junior or senior in college. And uh, it's a totally different world. Um, for one thing, at that point, tech was not really a thing. Everyone wanted to go into finance and consulting. That was it. Everyone was going to the Goldman Sachs info session. And uh, to me, it was totally bizarre because like on its face, it kind of felt like it would feel now where it's like, what is this like weirdo stuffy vibe here? Like, you know, yeah, I guess it's good to like do a thing that's, you know, the New York thing and you make money, but it also feels like kind of like this, how could power like college people getting excited about this? And that's how it would feel now, except there's no tech really. So that was one thing. And, you know, although I didn't go to like, you know, tech school or whatever, I was obsessed with going to law school. That was my plan. Uh, I was putting uh, the finishing touches on my uh, senior essay, my senior thesis project, which was something, uh, a project surrounding uh, eminent domain, which is a legal concept that is basically this idea that when uh, the uh, government wants to build a highway and uh, you have a liquor store that's in the path of the highway, the government can take that liquor store, give you money for it, and you can't say no. Whereas on the other hand, if the government passes a law that says you can't buy alcohol on Sundays and that puts your liquor store out of business, they don't have to pay you anything for that. And so, I don't know, there's some stuff here. Anyway, gives you a sense of where my head's at with like legal nerd stuff or whatever. And so I was very all in on like legal stuff. And I thought I'm going to write this great senior paper 
uh, and I'm going to uh, uh, go to law school. And, you know, I went to Yale as an undergrad. And so at Yale, there are all these like fancy buildings and old books. And it's like, wow, like this is like, this is cool. Like school, like Harry Potter, you know? And so <laughs> I was pretty enamored with the idea uh, of, of continuing and to do more school. And I'd gotten positive feedback at school. So I was like, maybe I'll do more school. Fortunately, everyone moved to New York after college and I decided to try that and see what could happen there. And I ended up not going in the direction of law school, but you know, I do, there's a lot of legal stuff day to day at Genius, you know, we got a lot of licensing, intellectual property thing. So, you know, I'm glad I had an interest, but I had, I had no clue. I had no ability to program whatsoever. I had never programmed. Uh, I was obsessed with law school. I was obsessed with school. Uh, and tech wasn't even really a thing, even if you could program, like at, at best you would work at Google. No one was really starting companies back then, at least in terms of the popular, you know, thing. So, um, you know, Y Combinator had just started, I guess. So anyway, uh, very different, very different headspace. So, you know, the lesson there is maybe don't be too confident, college kids, in knowing <laughs> anything. Sorry, sorry. Who knows what's going to happen? So, so yeah. So the next year would be 2010. So, so 2010. Um, so a lot of stuff happened in those, in those five years. Uh, 2009 excuse me, was the year Genius started. And 2011 was the year Genius got into Y Combinator and started to, you know, become whatever the what it is today. 2010, the middle year was not the beginning where we had just launched it. and We had a cool website to show our friends and not the end where a lot of people were using it. We had funding, but like the middle when the site wasn't new, it wasn't that cool because we had showed it. It's cool in the meeting. It's just there. It's there. Some people are kind of using it. Uh, uh, I don't know. Do you want to keep working on this? Should we? I don't know. You know, that's the year of toiling in obscurity. That's the year, you know, I still remember there was the, the first song uh, we ranked number one on Google. We had, uh, uh, it was, there was this, there's this song, Beamer, Benz, or Bentley. And yep. there's a, a remix. Now, oh, you know, this song is a fabulous, has a remix of this. So it was a pretty obscure song and it's a remix of that song. And that was the first song we got the number one result for. And so we were like, oh, my God, like, this is amazing. And so it's like anything. We wanted any any little piece of, uh, of encouragement. And so that that really was the year of, of, of toiling obscurity and not knowing what was going to uh, happen. It was also the year that I uh, quit my job. So I sort of took a leap of, leap of faith there and then ended up staying on in sort of part-time capacity or whatever. But I, I really at that point had decided I wanted to do something with my limited you know, early 20s or whatever in the startup world, but I just didn't know what it was going to be. And I thought maybe it'd be this genius thing, but like, I, I don't know. So it was, it was really a, a real transitional, a real transitional year. So we then, get this question a lot. Um, if you don't mind sharing, what was your lifestyle like when you quit your job and starting full-time working on Genius? Or what's the lifestyle that you would recommend to other entrepreneurs that go full-time? Tough to say. Obviously, the answer is in the beginning, spend as little money as possible. At the same time, the answer is move to New York, and New York is the most expensive place, although maybe not exactly, but it's pretty expensive. And so those are immediately the two most important things are in, in conflict in my, uh, in my view. And if you, want, if you think moving to San Francisco is important, fine, move there. But I, I would never do that in a million years. But you probably have to move somewhere expensive. So you know, you've got to be smart. You've got to be aggressive about your investments, and one investment is living in the right place. I think another investment is that you have to 
in my opinion, you can't also go around feeling like a broke monk or whatever. Like you've got to buy, you know, clothes uh, you like. You don't have to buy a Rolex or whatever, but you have to have some kind of, you know, self-expression through, you know, who you are. And you have to interact with popular culture. You know, you can't distance yourself from popular culture, in my opinion. You've got to listen to the music that is out now, not the music you liked when you were younger or whatever. Like you can't like be like, you know, I'm going to... Uh, you know, be like a, uh, a, 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 you know, a weirdo or whatever. Like I love that book from, you know, Tim Ferriss original meme book, the four hour work week. I love that book. It was something that uh, was very influential for me at that time when it first came out, but it sort of has an ethos of like, you know, true life hacker soylent vibe or whatever, which, you know, I think is, it's unproductive in my opinion, at least in New York, I can't speak for other uh, places. So I think, Live cheaply, but don't distance yourself from the essence of popular culture and humanity, and don't look down upon those who uh, uh, are, are really, in, in, you know, really doing that that kind of thing. And so, you know, I think this is also particularly important when you're like fundraising, for example. Like, if you're living super cheap when you're fundraising, you're going to start to feel broken, desperate. So, if you're fundraising, you've got to treat yourself to a nice dinner. You got to stay at a nicer hotel. You've got to feel like can't go around you know you gotta you know so it's it's the money thing is very is very complicated but just the most simple advice is spend as little uh as as possible get a nice computer that's you know that's that's an important <laughs> thing so it's it's very tough it's very tough i must say but it's it's good to be uh to be lean and as a company it's very good to be uh lean it is very very hard to pare down uh your personal life lifestyle is even harder to pare down your company uh lifestyle but both can be done both can be done it's the other side yeah, because there's this whole notion around like work hard, work hard is like the number one rule. But as you mentioned, we always like to ask to see if the social life and that balance is also important. Definitely. you. I mean, it depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do something that interacts with culture, you need to be out in the world and, you know, experiencing the social and, 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 and pop culture life. If it's, if it's not that, then I, I, you know, I don't have the one size fits all thing, but I absolutely... I absolutely uh, uh, agree with that. And, um, you know, at the same time, the work hard thing is very powerful. You know, I think that I, uh, you know, sometimes people ask, like, you know, I can't, you know, how do I do this? Like, I have all this stuff and how do I do it? I say, well, what are you doing every weekend day or whatever? Like, <laughs> work during that time. Go out at night. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and you'll get it done. And, and, and so, you know, there is the side of the thing of just like, what are you doing in your, in your, you know, in your free time? And that's how I built, you know, how I program genius, you know, it's just like, okay, well, if it's a weekend day, and this is how I still work today, whether it's, you know, I try not to work on genius on the weekends anymore. Cause I think that's like counterproductive to really work on it 24 seven, but I work on something and you know, I do ceramics or I do another programming project, like, you know, limited life in it. Anyway, go, go on. We also want to like finish off the um, year question with 2015 yes. as well, because we want to see how in six years after Genius was born, um, what's happened in 2015? It's a great question. I mean, these are, these are good years because 2010 was this really transitional year when we didn't know what was going on. And 2015 was that same vibe. It was the year where we both like January 1st, basically, you know, we both launched the web annotator and, you know, I was obsessed with it in the company, you know, it was really pretty amped up about it. We did a ton of work to make it good from a technology standpoint, PR wise, hired a bunch of people. And then midway through the year, six months in, it was also the year where the web annotator didn't work. And I, you know, couldn't, uh, you know, get out of bed in the morning for a while. And so it was, it was a real year in which we saw what we thought was the future 
of the company. And then also the same year where we saw that that definitely wasn't going to be the future of the company and, and had to, had to fix it. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was also the year that, you know, when you raise a lot of money as we did, you know, your first feeling is like, wow, this is amazing. And then the feeling is, uh, uh, is terror because, you know, what if I can't do, you know, this, this money, uh, uh, you know, could have been invested somewhere else. And so, you know, what if I don't, uh, turn, give people return? What if I turn into the same amount of money as it was or less? What if I turn into zero? Like, this is like big responsibility to use it well. And 2015 was the year all of my worst fears came through, came true. Like literally just like my exact worst nightmare from uh, raising the, uh, 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 the money. And I remember in 2015, I was, uh, uh, I was in uh, Sweden with uh, our chief strategy, our now chief strategy officer, Ben uh, Gross. And we were there to basically kind of ink the first deal in modern genius history, which was our Spotify partnership. And we had not yet inked it, but this was like, the, you know, the, the one the one thing at that time where we were feeling like, OK, this has real big uh, potential. And, uh, you know, we were there to kind of close the deal and it was going, you know, it was going well. But I remember walking around thinking, like, if we don't get this deal, like, you know, what are we going to do? And so, of course, we were able to pull that off and we were able to, to, to you know, make a bunch of other uh, uh, important uh, uh, advances that year. But, I you know, I, maybe I'm overblowing a little bit how like dire it got because I'm trying to like be romantic or whatever. But. It was a tough year, a transitional year, and a year that came a lot after 2010, uh, but also one that you know, you know, taught me uh, uh, taught me a lot. And you know, in that way, it was also kind of like the founding of uh, who we are as a company today. We hired uh, our chief content officer Brendan Frederick in the fall of 2015, and uh, you know, he has you know totally transformed you know who we are and built out Genius not just as a, a web experience, but as a all platform music media company and um and so it was a, a real in retrospect triumphant year but at the time uh uh it didn't feel you know great and 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 uh but yeah you know the people too it's just like yeah, as i said brendan rob markman also started in 2015 like you know these at the time we didn't know what whether these guys were going to be good and then they turned out to be absolutely amazing and so that's another thing where you can't lose uh hope because you might have just hired you know the team that is going to define your, your, your company. And so you've got to, uh, uh, you know, try to, you know, uh, uh, remain, you know, keep faith and, and try to have everyone do as good a job as possible. Cause it's hard to see, you know, unanticipated good things are going to happen too, just like unanticipated bad things. You need to keep both of those in, in mind. So that was a, what, what 2015 was about, uh, for me. Throughout the years, I mean, genius still works with a lot of artists, whether they're emerging or they're top star talent artists um, and it over time now being involved in genius coming there and being in the studio sharing your lyrics with uh, with their audience became like this uh, big deal and it almost became like a trophy for a lot of artists what is that relationship like is it a long-term relationship that you maintain with the artists what does it mean for them yeah I mean you know our goal and we achieve this to varying degrees is, is to be there with an artist as they release music throughout their entire career, helping expand their audience, deepen their relationship with the, you know, with fans by, by, you know, making uh, giving a whole dimension to, um, you know, cause understanding music better changes how it sounds is, is the, is the idea. You can't just, your brain has no direct access to the sound wave. All your brain can get is your experience and your experience involves the sound wave and everything that's ever happened to you and everything, you know, and so, you know, the thing you hear is, is changes by the knowledge that you have. And that's what Genius's goal is. So our goal is to do that for all artists, for all you know career periods. I think the thing that is 
thing that we're best at right now, and in some ways is the most exciting, although some ways not, is getting that, being that artist's first interview, basically. Like, you know, we, you know, Lil Nas X did his first interview with us, and he did it because, A, he came up on Genius, he was annotating lyrics on Genius, he was posting his own lyrics on Genius, and B, you know, he knew that we were going to take his art seriously for what it was, not just try to put him in a box as like a, you know, a meme music person, you know, and so... Uh, that was a really flattering thing. And I think we did a great, you know, interview uh, with him, but like just being that art, that up and coming artist first interview, finding, discovering, you know, the artist, if we can, you know, based on what action is happening on our site, our, our sort of data uh, department and, and, and also being that, being that first interview that can help set the tone for the artist's career is something that's really exciting to me, but we want to be there for all artists at, at all stages, uh, obviously. And a uh, majority of our listeners are usually um, either recent college graduates or current college students. So I really want to ask you, um, they maybe sometimes feel lost about what their passion is and how should they continue or like start their career. So what would be one advice that you would give to them? It is very difficult to figure out what is going on at any moment in time. And what I mean by that is if you put yourself in a given moment, me in 2015, or excuse me, me in 2005 in college, and you say, okay, Tom, you're in this moment, talk to me about your philosophy and what's going on in the world and uh, uh, what you're gonna do and how the world works and everything. Talk to me about that and, and try to reason about it in a really careful way. And especially with respect to your own life, Tom, surely you've thought about this a lot. Like, tell me your thoughts. And I would have said a bunch of stuff and it would probably sounded pretty reasonable. And in retrospect, all that stuff is totally ridiculous. And that is going on every second for everyone. Things that seem, from a philosophical approach, reasonable at the time, will later, when you take the historical approach and look at what happened, uh, it will later uh, look uh, uh, ridiculous. And this is like true in individual people's lives. Uh, it's also true with respect to history at large. I am a big student of the history of science because I think the you know, rationalistic, uh, uh, to, to understand how to apply rationalism and reason to one's own life, you can look at human society at writ large and you can say, well, you know, isn't it interesting that the set of philosophical precepts that people might say are part of what you might call the scientific method, you know, the actual scientists who were really great scientists by now didn't do that stuff. They did a bunch of stuff that wasn't the scientific method. You know, the idea, the Copernican idea that the Earth revolved around the sun. When he came up with that, there was not really much reason that was a good idea. It was kind of good in some ways, but it had problems. It was also wrong. He said the circular orbits are how they did it. So it was only over the course of, you know, centuries that it started to look like this was obviously, you know, the right uh, uh, thing. So it's very hard to know what's going on uh, at the time. And so that's one thing. By the same token, uh, in order to achieve anything great, you have to bet on people. Uh, that are good because you have to you can't do anything great alone that's number one rule and you have to bet on people uh and also you have to do things for a long time because you can't know whether something's working if you just spend you know a week on it or whatever you have to really really let it go and so you know these ideas together make it really hard because you can't tell what's going on and yet you must make serious choices and investment decisions so yeah, you know, if you're listening to this, you're screwed. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a rough situation. Uh, as we're wrapping up, we got a lot of people wanted to ask us this question. So uh, you kind of made a reference to it with Blink 182, but uh, if you could send out a message out to the world through only song lyrics, which song lyric would you pick and why? 
So yeah, so I just uh, I gave a talk to the company recently. And I, I like to close it with the uh, with a lyric, and you know, one uh, artist who I love, sadly, uh, deceased, uh, an artist named Mac Miller. He has a song, 2009, which is a very relevant song for me because uh, the chorus is uh, you know, and the song is basically saying it ain't 2009 no more. And um, 2009 was the year Mac Miller started to blow up. It was also the year that Genius started to blow up. And the song's about how many things have changed and how, you know, maybe things don't, you know, the same spirit isn't there. It's a little more of like a heavy spirit, uh, uh, but also interesting in a lot of ways. And so, you know, it's a really resonant song. And in the, uh, in the song, he has this, uh, he has this line where he says, uh, I'm a pro when it comes to my drive, but really I'm just trying to start believing in God. And, you know, that resonates for me because like, I'm a big believer in like working hard and, you know, hustling. I wouldn't call it that exactly, but like working, you know, hard at stuff and through that work, being able to create cool things, businesses, art, whatever it is. So I think having drive and trying to do things and uh, not being arrogant about your ability in any of those things, but if anything, being proud of your uh, being a professional when it comes to trying hard and doing a lot of things, I think is really important. So that's the first line. And the second line is, you know, he says, I'm really just trying to start believing in God. And to me, that's like the opposite where on the one side, it's like, it's important to work really hard and to try to achieve things. But then you also, you know, you don't have to believe in God necessarily, but you have to be alive to how much of the universe is outside of your control, which is a lot. And also how much even the stuff is within your control is incredibly unceasingly uh, mysterious. And so, you know, I don't uh, uh, believe, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, God is, I don't know, but like I, I am a belief believer. And in fact, I am a worshiper of the mystery of the universe because I believe that when you observe the mystery of the universe and you feel it, you should bow your head in a bit of reverence to it because if you don't, uh, you might find it uh, the case that you want to try to control it and you can't. And so to me, the great dialectic in life is, you know, change and acceptance is being able to, on the one hand, push yourself to be better, to try harder, to do cooler things, but to also accept that the universe is insane and you cannot uh, control it, not even close. So that's my lyric. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a part of Came a Long Way on UCLA Radio. I think it meant a lot to our listeners. It was a really valuable conversation. We're, we're already getting a lot of feedback, so <laughs> excellent <laughs> have to go through all of that. But thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Hey, if you're listening to this, you're next. <laughs> that's, that's I don't know. I didn't like that. Leaving like, an empowering, empowering. emotional. <laughs> you know, I want people to, yeah, hell yeah. Good job. For more, subscribe to Came a Long Way on Came a Long Way Apple podcast page and follow us on Instagram at Came a Long Way.